listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Blake Fischera, and I'm the author of the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, which features in-depth interviews with 14 amazing film music composers who have made significant contributions to the horror genre. If you haven't yet, please check out the back catalog of Scored to Death, the podcast. There are some fantastic interviews with some amazing composers for free right here on the internet. <laughs> so check them out. Today is a very atypical episode for Scored to Death, the podcast. And uh, in case you didn't listen to our last episode, which was an in-depth interview with Bill Conti, I have to say up front that the following interview is a little bit of a companion piece to that. In our last episode, we talked to the composer Bill Conti about his work on Rocky, Karate Kid, Masters of the Universe, amongst many other things, including director John McTiernan's feature debut, as well as Pierce Brosnan's feature debut, the 1986 film Nomads, which is probably a little off the beaten track for many contemporary horror fans. But it uh, was a video store staple in the mid-80s, and anybody from my generation can definitely remember the box cover in the video stores with Pierce Brosnan on the cover. Unfortunately, that score, to the best of my knowledge, has never been released on CD or vinyl or cassette, so maybe it's a bit of an odd choice to explore so thoroughly since it's not the most popular movie in the world, and you can't even get the soundtrack to listen to it. But it's a film that I like a lot, and I think the score deserves some attention, and the fact that you have the guy who scored Rocky in The Karate Kid working alongside rock guitar legend Ted Nugent is something that needs to be discussed anyway. <laughs> so today we're talking to the Motor City Madman himself, Uncle Ted, the Nuge, about that amazingly unique time in his career. Of course, fans of classic rock radio have heard some of Ted's hits over and over again, like Cat Scratch Fever, and of course the great rock guitar anthem Stranglehold. But today we're going to focus exclusively on his work with Bill Conti on Nomads. It's a bit of an interesting glimpse into mid-80s film scoring, which saw the transition from more traditional scoring with orchestra, with the advent of synthesizers and advancements in recording technology, and also just a bit of insight into which, at least on paper, seems like a very odd pairing of Bill Conti and Ted Nugent. But uh, I really enjoyed talking to Ted. It was a lot of fun. So without further ado, let's get right to the interview. I really appreciate you making the time to talk. Yeah, Blake, whenever somebody wants to talk about my music, I jump to it. Boy, I still love my music. And what a great chapter that was to uh, collaborate with the great Bill Conti. Wow, lucky, lucky me, huh? Yeah, I would love to find out, you know, by uh, 85, 86, you were already a bona fide rock star. How did you come to work on the film Nomad? Well, Bill, being a musical force to reckon with, is obviously tuned into other musical forces to reckon with. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sure that he heard 
some of my authoritative Motor City guitar licks permeating the airwaves globally. And uh, any music lover, whether no matter what your preferred genre might be, has got to appreciate the incredible musicianship of my my band and my my band mates. I've always been surrounded by really really gung ho gonzo musical virtuosos that like to go that non road never traveled musical adventure, and I'm sure that's what inspired and motivated and drove a Bill Conti. And when he heard my licks and he's doing the different movie uh, scores and saw this nomads imagery uh, come to light, I'm sure that the planets align. And he went, well, yeah, we got to get Ted Nugent to get some <laughs> in here. Um, he's a pragmatist. He's, a, he's an honest musical creator. So the, it was just natural. When you look at the imagery of nomads and the pulse and the, the cadence of the imagery in nomads, I mean... I'm sorry, but I'm the guy, <laughs> especially at that time when I was really going off with this Paul Reed Smith guitar, a new instrument of the day, and the sonic outrage that it was capable of. I'm sure sonic outrage connected with Bill's vision. And so he came and it was a, it was really quite an honor and quite an adventure. I really, really enjoyed it. What was special about that particular guitar? Why did it have so much sonic rage? Well, uh, Paul Reed Smith was a young luthier out of uh, Maryland, and uh, he was a snotty-nosed, bispectacled nerd who who loved uh, Ted Nugent music and loved guitars and loved guitar tone, and he had created in his own basement this instrument that took the best of both worlds of the masters at Gibson in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and the masters of Leo Fender's creation, and he saw the decline in quality of those two guitar institutions uh, going to foreign lands to manufacture these instruments that were once the, uh, the celebrations of American craftsmanship. So he said, doggone it, those Fender Strats and those Gibson Les Pauls um, were not the quality of times past. So he, being uh, an adventurous entrepreneur and woods craftsman and guitar nut, Paul Reed Smith was kind of like a mad scientist of guitar uh, design. And so he started tearing apart Fender pickups and Gibson pickups and tearing apart Gibson guitars and Fender guitars and looking at the old 1950s iconoclastic uh, Les Pauls and Strats and went, you know, the new ones aren't as good. I wonder why. So he took meticulous measurements and went deep into the guts of the instrument. And he says, I can do better than this. I can go back to the time when Gibson and Fender made just phenomenal musical surfboards, so to speak, where you could hang 10 on otherwise dangerous musical waves. And uh, he created the Paul Reed Smith guitar and he came backstage one night. I think it was as early as 75, 76. And he presented me with one of his basement creations. And it was it was cute because a lot of guitar you know, guys who make instruments in their basements, they would always approach me because if you just listen to what I did with the Amboy Dukes, uh, the journey to the center of the mine, Gibson Birdland, that was a 65 Gibson Birdland when it was really at its peak of sonic capabilities and playability overall. And if you're a guitar lover, you can't not claim 
that what I did with the Amboy Dukes tone-wise was just unprecedented. And then with my first solo album in 75 with the Stranglehold and Motor City Madhouse and just what the doctor ordered, all rock and roll lovers, especially guitar nuts, immediately focused on that uh, because the, my tones were unprecedented. So it was a it was a perfect storm of a guy like Paul who wanted to go back to that time when Gibson and Fender made masterpieces. And he came up with a, a five-tone switch on one of his first Paul Reed Smith guitars. And I played around with that five-tone switch. And when Bill Conti heard, I think he might have heard the Little Miss Dangerous you know, hyper squeal feedback that I was I was calling dogs from miles away during the recording session. And I think too it's important to note, Blake, that my hearing was quite deteriorated by that then. So I was always going for high end stuff because my high end uh, capabilities were almost gone. So I tended to lean heavily on the treble, <laughs> which also made for an interesting sonic scream and squeal. Yeah. And so what Paul created with this strange pickup split with that tone switch, I and the, the Galleon Kruger amp was also new at the time. And I'm always experimenting with amps. I experimented with amps and guitars this morning. And so Paul was fascinated by my use of his tonal stretch. I, Bill must have witnessed it or heard it or heard about it and when we got in there i saw bill's eyes got really wide which, which my my eyes are always really wide i mean i'm fascinated by guitars and and uncharted tonal adventure and it made perfect sense for nomads and and of course bill being a very traditional orchestrational musician what i was doing was just outrageous compared to his standard operating procedure. He's a guy that appreciates outrageousness and it was a marriage made in heaven. I had a riot do it. I also have to tell you, Blake, I was a bit rude at the time, which I'm really good at, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I did invent rude, but I perfected it by the time I was 12. <laughs> but when I, when I met with Bill Conti, I was awed and humbled that he would invite me into his world. And I was excited because I knew that I could, my hands and my musical knowledge and love, I could see an image and I could create the sound to go with that image. Yeah. And if you could look into my Hunt music CD, where I have a piece of music that I performed on our old 1965 Fender bass six, a six string bass guitar. And it was a spontaneous take one creation of a song called Sunrise. <laughs> I just started beating on this Fender bass and it's so beautiful. And only a guy who has sit in a tree, thousands of sunrises and thousands of sunsets as a bow hunter waiting for the day to arrive and saying goodbye to a day in the belly, literally in the belly of the beast. I think my hunting and spiritual conservation lifestyle paralleled with the most outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> In it, 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 what, what ferocious, defiant rock and roll lifestyle, there's no human 
emotion or idea that I can't create a noise for. Now, that's pretty cocky of me, but that that's who I am. So when I saw the images on the screen, I remember Bill Conti would get giddy that when I'd see the image, that immediately my guitar made a noise that was perfect for the imagery. <laughs> and, and because I, and again, I, I'm going to emphasize, I've been clean and sober all my life. So my radar picks up on those nuances, those emotions and, and those subtleties and, and not, and not so subtle deliveries of imagery and, and, and emotion on screen. So I think Bill appreciated that. But my, when I'm saying I was rude, as humbled as I was that Bill would invite me, I kind of took over. <laughs> and I remember one encounter where, where Bill is, we're supposed to be collaborating as, as co-writers. And I got really, I got really smart ass, which again, I'm really good at. And I said, wait a minute, how, how can you claim we're co-writing this? That's my, I came up with this idea and he goes, well, we're here to co-write. And I went, yeah, but this is my idea. <laughs> I didn't really grasp the concept of co-writing at the time, yeah. but uh, but I acquiesced. <laughs> there was a gentleman somewhere in my history, and I I came to realize that God, I'm working with Bill Conti. You might want to just be a little more respectful, goofball. So so I was a little more respectful, and I hope Bill appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying it's definitely Conti who called you. It wasn't some producer or anything. It was definitely Bill's the one that uh, thought you were the right guy for this. And he gave you a call. You know, I would imagine a musician like yourself who had been on the road for well over a decade at that point. I mean, is there a time to watch movies? I mean, were you at that point aware of his work and, and what he had contributed to cinema? Yes. Um, to some degree. And you're right. I was not a movie buff. I do believe that uh, Old Yeller should be standard curriculum in all schools from preschool to law degree graduates. Um, <laughs> and so should uh, Patriot and Braveheart and Dirty Harry. Now, those aren't Bill Conti <laughs> movies. Uh, but I was I was a minimal moviegoer, but I certainly knew the name. And I even as, as we speak today, back then I researched and I found out which movies Bill had done the soundtrack for. And I was obviously very impressed. Yeah. Uh, right now, I don't recall what those movies were. I'm sure if you mentioned their titles, I would immediately go, oh, yeah, that's one of them. But uh, so much water has gone under that bridge since then, especially musically and, uh, and human adventure wise. But I immediately understood that this was a real honor. This was a, this was a lucky musical chapter for me, and I I really turned on my radar so I could pick up all of Bill's geniusness and musical spread. And I've, I was already deep into Mozart and Bach and 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 listening to orchestration. If you listen to what I did with the Amboy Dukes on a song called Migration. eventually a song called Hibernation. I was deep into orchestration, but focusing it on guitar, bass, and drums and some keyboard work. 
but I was always fascinated by the use of cellos and orchestration and timbales and timpanis and and uh, all the stringed instruments and the brass. I was always fascinated by that. In fact, a lot of my guitar licks were inspired as much by uh, John Coltrane and uh, uh, some of the saxophone gods of the day as it was uh, Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. So I was already um, deep into widespread musical inspiration. It's my understanding that the process was basically Bill on synths, you on guitar, and a sound engineer in a studio. Yes, it was uh, real streamlined, real economic. And uh, again, I think the Nomads movie was uh, was the motivation there. Um, it was raw. It was primal. And I've always, if, if ever there's two words that I, I come up with whenever I'm interviewed, which I am pretty much every day, I just got done with two interviews. <laughs> they're, always, they're talking about how primal and raw my music is. And so that was perfect. It was so organic for that movie. And uh, I know Bill could have done it without me. But uh, if you really want grind and grunt and ferocity and 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 dangerous noises i don't think there's any other instrument that could deliver it quite like my guitar and a lot of other great guitarists as well i think of steve Vai and joe satriani and certainly eddie van halen and stevie ray vaughn and Jimi hendrix my god talking about ferocious angry guitar noise but i think i delivered a very unique angry guitar noise when bill wanted it and i think he really really was fascinated by that it's my understanding that you know unlike the way he typically worked, which is, you know, off on his own writing, having watched the movie, then sitting down, writing out what he's going to do because it was just the two of you guys. And he comes from the jazz background. You guys are both able to improvise. It's my understanding that that score was pretty much just the two of you guys watching scene by scene and, and just making some noise. Is that correct? Absolutely. It was so quick and spontaneous. And again, that's my uh, Bill's should really be revered for his understanding, um, especially since he was a, a self-contained autonomous soundtrack creator. That really can become, it can blind you, I think. And, and not in a negative way. I think when you're so focused on how you create music and you're so revered in the industry to coming up with the perfect soundtrack for this movie scene. And he was certainly a god of that capability. I think he was universally revered and respected for that uh, genius. But the real reverence should be paid to Bill. And not because he chose me, though I'd like to think so, uh, but because he stepped so far out of his box. And I'm not I'm not criticizing the limitations of his chosen box because it wasn't very limited. He did all kinds of outrageous stuff. Some of the dissonance that he created probably pissed off the traditional orchestrators out there. And remember, if you're not pissing somebody off, you're stagnant. Um, and, and so I suppose if there was an inkling to piss people off, he called the right guy. <laughs> but I remember, Blake, they would show a scene and I'd have the guitar on and the amp plugged in. And I would immediately smash a noise in a chord pattern. And Bill went, he'd throw up his arms and go, yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> fucking perfect. <laughs> so, so I think that, that raw, primal, instinctual. And remember, he, he hired the only predator in the industry. <laughs> so I, I didn't have to um, 
go to predator school to learn how to come up with an angry predator guitar lick. I am a, I am a predator. I probably killed a deer shortly before the session started. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, I would go up into the hills of Hollywood with my bow and arrow and shoot rabbits. <laughs> so, so, and I, and I'd gut them and clean them and eat them. Um, so I think I had a connection to the de- tip, de- definitive raw predator, you know, and it's not violent in a negative way, but I suppose when you save your family from an enemy that could be considered violent, but it's beautiful. I suppose when the wolf takes down a Buffalo, um, somebody who doesn't understand that would call it violent, but it's perfect. It's, it's beautiful. It's what I call the tooth, fang and claw ballet. And that's not a Ted Nugent thing. That's a, that's a God's creation miracle thing. So I, I think I came with an arsenal of, uh, ideas that are, again, I don't, I don't want to brag, but can't help myself. But those are those are pretty unique capabilities. I, there's no other musician out there that kills his own food and kills his own stage clothes and skins them and guts them and smokes them. <laughs> and uh, so, so I, when those scenes, when those savage scenes came on, I, I immediately knew what it would sound like. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, even with the Amboy Dukes, I was making noises and feedback and dissonance and and nasty semitone bends and squeals and noises and, and, and frequency uh, outrage. So I think Bill really loved that. And there's no other instrument that can do what I do or, or what a guitar could do, and, and especially in my hands. So it was, it was, an out, it was so much fun yeah. because I, I love when I come up with a noise and somebody really loves it. I mean, that's why you paint a picture because somebody would really ad- admire that picture or any art form or even a good weld. I think welding is the greatest art form in the world. And I've, I've wanted to hug welders all my life. <laughs> I really love their art. So to see Bill, a Bill Conti, a God of uh, musical genius, uh, uh, historical uh, classic movie soundtracks get so excited when I'd make my guitar, make some kind of, you know, wounded animal noise. That was really very gratifying for me. Bill isn't necessarily known for horror movies, but, you know, Nomads certainly isn't a a traditional horror movie in terms of especially what was popular in in the mid 80s with the slasher movies and stuff. But one of the things I find interesting about horror movie scores is that they do kind of lend themselves to experimentation and noise. And I think that's why this hybrid between him on these very uh, beautifully toned synthesizers... in juxtaposition to the squealing, rageful guitar that you're playing. Is the kind of sound that couldn't happen in just any movie. It seems like horror is the place for something like that. Absolutely. Well, I think your observation is is right on the money, but I'll give you... Uh, an interview of where my visions and the sounds representing those visions come from. You'll never talk to a musician who have heard so many animals die. I run a trap line all my life. I trap animals. So I, 
to mitigate disease, to maintain healthy populations, and to get natural organic fur so I don't use chemical and raw crude pollutants to make my clothes. I, I, I wear rabbit skins and beaver hides. So my point is I'm, I'm clarifying that hunting, fishing, and trapping, and killing things, and using their meat and their bones and their hide, this is perfect. It's literally perfect environmentalism. It's the ultimate conservation. But in the process, there's going to, there's going to be some discomforting moments. Sure. Even for a person who faces that that muskrat in the trap or a coyote in a trap and I'll shoot them between the eyes to kill them quickly, but they make noises. And to the uninitiated, your average human being couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle the noises their chicken cordon blue made. I promise you that. There's some, yeah, so it's not a Ted Nugent killing a coyote thing. It's, it's literally since you and I started this interview, billions of animals have died. <laughs> to feed the world and they've all made noises but i'm there i witnessed the noises so those noises they're uncomfortable for me but it it's it's the old yeller thing again when old yeller brings you your slippers in the newspaper and saves your kid from a a, a rattlesnake you hug old yeller and you give him a biscuit that's perfect well, when old yeller gets rabies and starts foaming at the mouth and snarls at your kids, it's the same old yeller, but now it's a different condition. You shoot him between the eyes. Uh, this is life. Well, who else could call upon those experiences to milk and mine a guitar version of that dying animal? Now, again, even that sentence would be so offish to some people. Yeah. Well, there's, for instance, there's a very noteworthy special effects makeup guy who did a lot of stuff in the 80s uh, named Tom Savini, and he was a photographer in Vietnam. And so a lot of the gore that he saw through his camera while in war definitely impacted and made its way into the gore effects that he created for film experience always comes through in your art form. Blake, I give you the gold medal of uh, analogy. Your analogy of a makeup artist who photographed the carnage of Vietnam is a better example of what I'm talking about than Ted Nugent hearing the dying throes and squalls of animals that are going to feed and clothe my family. That, perfect. And who better to to create a visual gore than a guy who photographed real visual gore. P perfect analogy. Perfect. Do you remember how long you spent in the studio with Conti doing the music for the movie? It was only a matter of a few days. I think that's all he could stomach of me. <laughs> <laughs> I think because I got real possessive about my licks. It's one of the, Things, a lot of people go, well, is there anything in your life that you would have changed? Yeah, I would have probably been more respectful to Bill Conti and quit trying to claim that that's, the whole thing is mine because we were there as collaborators. But I was so cocky. I'm so much less cocky today. I'm so humble today. I'm so Mrs. Nugent has forced me into t a total humility. <laughs> well, I think just also <laughs> life experience and maturity. You know. I've, I've matured, God forbid, even <laughs> though I'm still writing songs like Wango Tango. Uh, at any rate, yeah, 
it was a quickie. I got to tell you, were you able, is Bill still alive, by the way? Yeah, I talked to Bill and he didn't really have a whole lot to say about it. His one story, he did tell a funny story about working with you, which was, he said the studio was in, quote unquote, the funkiest part of town. And uh, he said, you were going to go out and get a cup of coffee or, or a sandwich or something. And he's like, you know, when you go out there, be careful. And he said, then you pulled out a gun. You said, I can take care of myself. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't actually pull it out. I just lifted my shirt. <laughs> yeah, when I say cocked, locked, and ready to rock is not a euphemism. <laughs> I've never been unarmed or helpless. Call me weird. <laughs> but, but again, that was, I think, if Bill Con- again, Bill Conti, be sure you express to him how much I love him and how much I am so appreciative of being invited into that world. I really am uh, just so uh, so lucky to have experienced that with a master like Bill. But you have to admit, as, as brilliant and creative and gifted as Bill was, I think if I dare say, and a, a lot of things take a lot of dare out of me, what a brave son of a bitch to invite Ted Nugent. <laughs> Into his into his soundtrack created world that that should be his gold star of gold stars because talking about throwing a grenade in your paradigm don't don't you think Blake don't you think that was just the most unpredictable turn that he could have ever made and how wonderful is it that he did yeah well I think I think you're right something that happens with film composers especially the good ones because they're not like a musician in a, or a composer in the traditional sense. Like when you write an album or a song, you're writing it for yourself and maybe for your audience, but it's, it's yours. And when you write music for a film, it's for somebody else. You're a slave to the movie and to the director. And so I, I found that film music composers, at least the ones I've talked to, and there's been like 30 or 40 of them at this point, I really have their egos in check because I don't think you can have a really huge ego and be able to create music that, you know, might not be exactly what you would want to do for the movie, but it has to be what's right for the movie and what the director wants. So I think there are more film composers than you would probably realize that would say, you know, this is what's going to be right for the movie. If I need Ted Nugent to come in, then that's what's got to be done, even though, you know, a Ted Nugent in 1985 might be semi-rude and, and difficult to work with <laughs> you know that uh, <laughs> uh yeah I, I wrote a couple of fire breathing stallions in that was my ego and they were shitting flames <laughs> and uh, so i was i was at the peak of my cockiness no wait a minute no i actually today i'm at the peak of my cockiness <laughs> for acknowledging that i thought back then was the peak of my cockiness but what a what a what a smart um observation about soundtrack composers I, I don't know if it if it goes as deep as being a slave to the visuals and the the movie content. I think that when a composer is hired, it's because the the producers and those seeking the sounds to go with the visuals really revere that composer and know that they will be dedicated. When and I have to comment when I'm writing music, I don't write music. I got to tell you, Blake, I will grab my guitar, and flames erupt. Every time I don't, I, yes, it's selfish because it's my cravings for this groove and this noise and this pattern and this melody and this chordal structure, but I am such a slave to the audiences because I'm them before I'm the, I'm the music lover before I'm the music creator. I am still 
that kid in a Detroit garage in 1956 trying to figure out Johnny Be Good on this really bad acoustic guitar that my aunt gave me and failing miserably. So I am such a music fan lover that that's the, that is the overwhelming motivation of a, a, a sound and song, even a lyric, even though many of them are very personal, they're not uniquely mine. I don't, I don't think I experience any emotions or feelings or visions that my fellow man doesn't feel. And I think that what Chuck and Bo and Little Richard and Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and James Brown and Wilson Pickett and all those emotional gods of musical authority, which all happen to be black, and if they weren't black, it was Elvis and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis who were trying to be black. What they came out of slavery and finally emancipated and went from just heartbreaking blues and gospel to Chuck Berry and Little Richard went free, free at last. So that musical inspiration is still as pure today at the age of 71 as it was at the age of nine. So I am merely the facilitator of the music that all of us love. I just happen to have worked at it so hard to have unlimited capabilities on that guitar neck, which I think is once again what brought Bill and I together. And he should really, really be uh, saluted for uh, uh, leaving uh, the historical paradigm and procedures. Uh, and I, th I thought it was really brilliant. When I see uh, my, my assistant, Linda, and my manager, Doug, brought forth uh, some uh, uh, YouTube uh, moments of uh, nomads, and it, it really brings a smile to my face. What a great, great uh, opportunity that was. Do you remember if the director, John McTiernan, was around at all? Like, did you get to meet him? Did you get to kind of see how he and Bill communicated in terms of creating music? I'm smiling really broadly right now because, yes, uh, John was there when I got rude with Bill, trying to claim that trying to claim that this composition was all mine, that Bill didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> and John rolled his eyes and go, who the hell does this guy think he is? <laughs> but think of this, Blake. So I'm writing, I'm co-writing with Bill Conti. And th th that week, I was hanging out at the comedy store with Richard Pryor, Sam Kinison, Rodney Dangerfield, the greatest comedians that ever lived, Richard Pryor. Uh, I'm hanging out with these guys. And so I'm in the, I'm hanging with the A-list of humanity, Robin Williams. I'm going out to dinner with Bruce Willis. So Bruce Willis, Sam Kinison, Rodney Dangerfield, and Robin Williams, and Richard Pryor, and Ted Nugent are going out to get Thai food at four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then, hey, now that I mentioned it, I think I brought some of that angst. <laughs> I think I brought some of that noise and primal scream. Yeah. Because uh, those guys were all completely stoned out of their minds. And I'm the only straight guy carrying a Beretta 9mm and four magazines <laughs> at 4 a.m. at a Thai restaurant. So I think, I think my arsenal of human experiences was really unique back then. What a lucky, lucky guy. And I, you know, and I've been so lucky to have the greatest musicians in my bands and to jam with the greatest musicians and perform with them. I mean, I'm a lucky, if you wonder where all this piss and vinegar and energy comes from, how could you not feel so alive 
having the experiences that really are, are represented by the uh, Conti collaboration. I mean, that's that's where this uncharted musical outrage comes from, because I've lived a really outrageous American dream of, I mean, I literally played bass guitar for Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. I was taught how to race off-road by Mickey Thompson and uh, the greatest race, race car drivers in the world. I got to hunt with a guy named Fred Bear, who was the founding father of modern bow hunting. Parnelli Jones drove me around the Indy 500, scaring the living shit out of me one time. So I've, I've really been a lucky. And then I married Mrs. Nugent. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, all that uh, ultra, ultra aliveness goes into what musical ideas you have. And I'd like to think that mine is just virtually unlimited. So this is a long drawn out answer because I get excited talking about my music, especially chapters like Bill Conti. So no, it didn't take long. And I did meet John and he was in the sessions and he was ex expressing just excitable joy at how I would make a noise in a groove in a chord pattern to go with the imagery on screen because he was so merry. As a producer, he's merry. He loves that. That's his baby. And Bill's music, that's his baby. Well, my music is my baby. And we all celebrated the, I guess we were a, a threesome parent <laughs> yeah. of, of, this, of this marriage of visuals and sounds. And it was really an orgy of uh, excitement and happiness. I, that's how I remember. There's a, a song featured in the film called Strangers, which also appeared on your album at the time. Killer song, yeah. Bill and you are, are credited with writing it. I was wondering if you have any kind of recollection of writing a song with Bill or or how that song came about. Oh, yeah. It was like, um, not unlike sitting in the basement of the Amboy Duke's house in Arlington Heights, Illinois, in 1964, 65, as I'm pounding out these rhythm patterns and these chord changes just, just spontaneously. And Bill was excited. And when someone's excited about noises that I'm making and patterns, um, it, it, it further excites me. So, yeah, I remember creating that Stranger song. And Michael Verdick was my producer at the time. And he was the master of really making sure that the sounds I'm making ended up on tape back in those days. It was tape still, I believe. It was monologue. And uh, Dave uh, Amato, my singer at the time, sang the song Strangers and also was so dedicated. The, the, the professionalism of a John and a Bill and the engineer who was there and, and me and Dave Amato on vocals and Michael Verdick uh, uh, producing my record and getting those songs, it really was as good as humans can get. What, such dedication and such focus on the project at hand. It was, it was very, very gratifying and stimulating for me, but I remember it well. We were there with pen and paper, and I blasted out these chords, and we'd already registered the visuals of the nomad moments that were on the screen in the recording studio. So it just flowed. It flowed as natural and organically, and I, I'm sure we just constructed that song and all that stuff, bang, 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 bang. It, 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 the, the biggest obstacle to samurai excellence 
was expressed in that Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai. When he was fucking up with the samurai sword, the samurai master went, too many minds. Well, there were not too many minds in that studio. It was as spontaneous and primal as the, as the theme of nomads demanded. And I don't care what kind of movie it might be. It could be the sounds of music or some Disney movie. And that kind of unification of vision and, and teamwork uh, is, is, is essential to get the best job done. And that that excellence, that samurai unity of Bill and I and every t- team player was really very compelling and very gratifying for me. It's a shame that score has never made its way onto a soundtrack album or anything, because it's really unique. You know, obviously there are moments, especially the ones of more action oriented stuff, where it's just it's clear that you guys are just throwing sound at the movie and, and letting it play. And, and a lot of that stuff also kind of plays uh, the intent is that it's, it's working as musical score, but also music within the movie that they're listening to. But then you get something like Conti's main theme. Which is, very beautiful and and more melodic than some of the other stuff that you guys were doing towards the end of that theme in the beginning of the movie. Then we start to hear some guitar and it's much more controlled than a lot of the other things. Do you remember if Bill came in with specific ideas to kind of uh, get some of that stuff started, or was it really just all coming together in a spontaneous fashion? It really all came together in a spontaneous fashion. Again, I was aware of Bill Conti, and I was aware of his orchestrational skills. I couldn't have named one of his compositions, and again, I had to do a little research to remind myself which movies he actually scored. But I got to tell you, I would would hope that John and and Bill would uh, uh, corroborate this, but boy, it was it was a ma- a matter of just unleashing. There was no there wasn't anything. I mean, I didn't go. Geez, well that's a that's a fascinating visual there. Let me think. <laughs> yeah. What what chord would be appropriate? I mean, I literally would turn on the amp and bang, and and, and those guys went, yeah, that that's perfect. <laughs> and I, I'd make some you know dying vermin sound, <laughs> a squealing you know collision of two tandem gravel trucks (laughs) and it was it was as organic and impulsive and zero thought went into it it was as it was as knee-jerk as a samurai guy snapping a fly out of the air with his chopsticks (laughs) if if you thought about it you'd you'd have missed him yeah that's it was pretty special that's the way i remember it and i don't i remember too that I didn't do any homework. I didn't go out and remind myself of his orchestration because once they said, well, he did this 007 movie, if, if, if in fact he did, I think yeah. he did. He did do one, yeah. Uh, I, I was certainly aware of it and I'm, I'm aware of, you know, giant orchestras, uh, virtuosity. He did Rocky also, which was a- Yeah, there, there you go, hello. So <laughs> so uh, I think, and again, you're you're referencing this beautiful melodic harmonic theme uh, song that Bill created. Well, sure, um, Nomads, and 
dare I say, I'm not a movie buff, but I think it's accurate to say that I presume that every movie has to have balance. You want to take people on a roller coaster ride of emotions and sensations. And so who better than Bill Conti to create that gentle, melodic, emotional moment musically and then and then go, all right, Ted, do it. <laughs> and, then, and then bring in the snarling beast. <laughs> was working in film music ever an ambition that you wanted to do again? Or was it just, uh, it was an opportunity, you took it, and uh, you went on to the next opportunity? All of the above. I mean, I am so uh, high-paced. I'm really energized. Uh, I, I love what I do. Um, I, I crave unleashing musical ideas and sounds and noises and compositions. And even today, as we speak right now, Blake, I would love to do soundtrack work. And I remember after that experience, I would tell my management, Oh, I'd love to do some more of that. If you can make that happen, but then, Oh, but I'm in the studio and then I'm on tour. No, I can't do it. It's hunting season. (laughs) I'm raising my children. Um, So it was just a matter of uh, prioritization and, I would love it to be a higher prioritization. And maybe now, since I only tour uh, for six or eight weeks each summer, I would I would love, and dare I say, I would be really, really effective at creating soundtracks, both beautiful, orchestrated, melodious um, moments, as well as, you know, you know, angry, demonic, you know, butt-fucking noises. Um, so... <laughs> So, yes, it's yes, yes, yes. I would love to pursue that kind of co-creativity where my creativity is inspired by a visual. And I think that's what a soundtrack ultimately should be. Um, I would love to do that. And I, I wanted to do it then. But again, my A, B and C and D priorities took up my time. So I, I haven't done it since, but I would love to. Okay, I definitely need to thank Ted Nugent for taking the time to talk to me about his collaboration with Bill Conti on the film Nomads. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, to the best of my knowledge, that score isn't available anywhere. But you can find the song Strangers, which was featured in this episode, on Ted Nugent's 1986 album Little Miss Dangerous. So make sure you check that out. And of course, check out all of Ted's work with the Amboy Dukes, as well as his fantastic solo career. I'm not exactly sure what Scored to Death the podcast has in store for us in the coming months. I don't have any more interviews at the ready, but I am in the middle of scheduling, and hopefully we'll have an episode not too far into the future. But until then, please check out our back catalog. Please check out my book, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. It's available on Amazon in ebook and paperback. You can also find it from other book retailers, or you can get it from me directly at scoretodeath.com. Of course, you can also check me out on the podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, which I host with my dear friend, Dion Baia. And I want to thank you for listening and for your support. You can follow me on social media, at scoretodeath, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And until next time, stay scary. <laughs>